From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Hearing from a doctor that your child is autistic can be one of those moments in life when the world stops. The National Institutes of Health describes autism as a neurological and developmental disorder that affects how people interact with others, communicate, learn, and behave. Symptoms typically appear during the first two years of life, according to the NIH. As we learn more about the disorder, well-known people, celebrities, are going public with their own diagnoses. A short list includes former NBA player Tony Snell, the actors Anthony Hopkins and Daryl Hannah, film director Tim Burton, singer Courtney Love, and entrepreneur Elon Musk. Autism experts widely agree that poet Emily Dickinson, writer Mark Twain, and physicist Albert Einstein were probably on the spectrum. In early 2023, the CDC found that one child in every 36 has autism. That's a significant increase from the 2021 estimate of one in every 44 children. But the CDC tells us the reason for the increase is not any epidemic of autism. It's because clinicians are getting better at diagnosis. And because autism spectrum disorder can affect anyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, or economic background, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends all children get screened. Despite its greater public profile, however, experts say there's still a stigma that comes with the diagnosis. And that stigma and fear can prevent parents from getting the help their children need. Today, we'll explore what we know about autism spectrum disorder and current treatment, and we'll find out how one local man with the diagnosis became a high-functioning member of the community, helping others learn what it means to live with autism. Darian Brooks, now in his 50s, was diagnosed with profound autism when he was four years old. Today, he holds down a part-time job, volunteers at Teach, a nonprofit that helps kids and adults with autism. Darian was one of the first children to be enrolled when the program was called the Child Research Project out of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and he contributes to his family. Darian Brooks, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, Rachel. It's, it's, it's so very special for me to be here today. It's really good to have you with Thank us. Thank you. Alice Brooks, Darian's mother, worked as a pediatric nurse for 42 years at what is today the Children's Developmental Services Agency. She retired at the end of 2008, but still volunteers when the need arises for the local nonprofit TEACH. Alice Brooks, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Good to have you with us. Dr. Amelia Moody is a professor of special education at the Watson College of Education at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She specializes in kids with autism. Dr. Moody, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. We all know the culture, which is moving towards inclusivity in so many ways, still tacitly pressures people to hide their autism. There's, there is still that stigma that I noted in the introduction. So Darian, 
Why did you want to come here and talk so openly about your autism? <clears throat> well, the uh, what I want what I want to do what I want to bring oh, right here to the front table, Rachel, and is for is to educate and uplift and inspire all parents who have high functioning or low functioning children or adults to help them to help them make make sense of their of their child or adults um, diagnosis and to you and use that diagnosis as a as the first stepping stone towards helping others understand what it what what autism is like and what what they can do to bet to help make make the make the diagnosis more uh, clear and accurate through Evalu through evaluate through evaluations and meetings with um, diagnostic uh, clinicians and um, clinical directors and school teachers administrators and every, everyone everyone who wants to know who who wants to help that child or adult blend into blend into society a society that can be that can be more open and more inclusive if they if if they are edu if they are given the proper education to do that Alice Brooks when Darian was first diagnosed when he was 4 years old how did you feel you were a pediatric nurse and so you knew something about this yes. but well, you still it wasn't easy no it was not easy at all mm -mm. um <clears throat> From the time he was born, um, as a, as a as a newborn, most newborns, are, you know, don't sleep well at night. They awake in the middle of the night or whatever. For the first two years, Darren never slept at all. He was wide awake day and night. There was no sleeping, and of course, there was a lot a lot of sleeping for us either. You know, being concerned about him, and of course, knowing that this was abnormal really concerned me. Then, uh, when he was about two years old, he still was not talking at all, but he was reading, which just blew our mind, you know. <laughs> um, we stopped at a stop sign one day on the street and we were in the car and he was in the back seat in his shop in his seat and he looked up and he said stop he was reading the sign he was reading the stop sign that's right and so before he could even speak and and get across language wise he was reading things he could pick up a book and read the book i mean not not a novel, of course, I don't mean that, but simple words in a book. So when did read. you, did you and start then, to suspect he had autism before he got the diagnosis or, or did yeah. you, did you know what that was back yeah. then? Oh yeah. Yes, I did. And he was also had the typical behaviors, the flapping, mm -hmm. the arms, the, I used to call him my little chirper because he'd chip, 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 you know, like this and flap his arms and, you know, and, and was very difficult, if not impossible, to control his behavior. Uh, so, you know, we knew, we 
pretty well knew, figured out what what was wrong. And then uh, because of where I was working, we had decided long ago that we would made, we made the decision never to diagnose each other's children where we were working. So we went to another agency, another center in the state, and got the diagnosis uh, from from them, another um, DEC, it was DEC at the time, and got the diagnosis from them. And um, at that time, um, Darian was um, four years old then um, when he was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And um, his dad um, was in graduate school at Carolina in the School of Social Work, and Dr. Shopler was one of his professors. So he had heard about the Child Research Project and went over and talked to him about it, and we this were is able UNC. to get into yes, that. Yes, that is right. That's where we were able right. to get into that research project. So it was then. called. So Dr. Shopler was uh, setting out to disprove the theory that autism was a result, Dr. Moody, mm-hmm. of so-called refrigerator parents. Yeah, that's right. Do we know, it, it, which, you know, that whole idea is that the the mother or father are sort of cold, emotion, right. emotionless, unfeeling people, right. and that's why the child is autistic. Right. So he did disprove that. Mm-hmm. But Dr. Moody, do we have any idea at this point what causes autism, and do do we think that it is on the rise? Do we know? We don't know the cause of it, but what we do know is there's a genetic component and mm-hmm. an environmental component um, that we have found out. So we're not sure what kind of pushes kids over the edge, um, so to say, if they have the, the gene. Um, it's common for families to have multiple people in a family to have autism. Mm-hmm. Um, so if one family member has it, it, it would be much more common for another to be diagnosed with it. Do we, is it on the rise, though? Do we know that? I think we're getting a better diagnostic process going. I think that lots of people had autism, but it wasn't um, diagnosed as such because there's a lot of other comorbid disabilities that go along with it. And so they were, um, say, diagnosed with an intellectual disability, but they also had autism. What are some examples of those other disabilities (coughs) that can tend to go along with autism? It can be ADHD, a learning disability, a behavioral issue, um, all kinds of disorders. Alice Brooks, when you got the diagnosis that night, you went out on your porch. Tell us about that night. Yeah, We got home from uh, Greenville and got everybody in bed, and I went out on the porch, and I sat there all night long and cried and just begged with God, you know, what have I done? Because what have I done to to deserve this? What have I done? What have I done wrong? You know, and what can I do? And um, I have since gotten that answer from God, and God's answer was, well, I gave you the greatest gift I could give anybody. You're listening to Coastline. We're learning about what it means to live with autism and how early treatment 
can be so important in changing the trajectory of someone's life. After this short break, we'll explore some of the challenges Darian faced growing up and going to school and how he and his support system worked through it all. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. A diagnosis of autism can be shattering for a young parent, especially one who doesn't know what's possible with treatment. Today, we're meeting Darian Brooks. Now in his 50s, he was diagnosed with profound autism when he was four years old. Today, he is a high-functioning member of society. Also with us today, his mother, Alice Brooks, a retired pediatric nurse, and Dr. Amelia Moody, professor of special education in UNCW's Watson College of Education. She works with kids who have autism. Just before we went to break, Alice Brooks, you told us uh, the moment you had on the porch when you just sobbed all night and bargained with God (laughs) and asked essentially why. At the time, you were told that you would probably need to institutionalize Yes, we did. Yeah, that's what we were told when we got the diagnosis. Why did you not do that? There... That was just never a question for us. That was something we just knew we could not, certainly could not do at that point and hopefully would never have to do. Um, And so instead, (laughs) (laughs) so your husband was getting his master's at the time at UNC Chapel Hill Uh under the direction of Dr. Eric Schopler, Uh who had started the Child Research Project. And so you got involved with that. And what okay. kinds of things was Dr. Schopler teaching you about okay. how to work with your son? Uh, what we did is we went to Chapel Hill once a month. And there were about, I think, it was less than 20 people. I don't know, somewhere between 15 and 20 people in the research project. <clears throat> and I may be wrong on those numbers. I know that's about the number. And they would interview us, they would evaluate Darian, and then they would write a program for us to work on at home. Because his thesis was that not only had the parents not caused it, but the parents could be their child's own therapist. So we would come home and uh, I worked with Darian with the um, program, and Harry, we had a, uh, he had a, we had a little boy who was two years old and a daughter who was six months at the time, and Harry became mom and dad for them, and um, we would work with the program. I worked with him every night for a certain amount of time, and then at the end of the month, we'd go back to Chapel Hill and 
do the process over again. They would revamp the program however they needed to. And this went on until he, um, actually until he got into public school. But at three years of age, he was enrolled at First Presbyterian Preschool. So First Presbyterian and Teach and, and our family all worked together uh, with him uh, in, in, the, in a preschool sex, uh, session. And then I was also doing the, the uh, home programs too at night. Can you give us an example of an exercise that you would have done with Darian at home when he was a little, when he was just a toddler? Do you remember any of those, Darian? I, uh, <clears throat> I'm glad you asked this, Rachel. Uh, one, one such exercise involved matching, matching, pu- matching picture puzzles together. I, w- I would be given a, I would be given a, a, a picture, I would be given a picture. During, and like a picture of a dog, like a picture of a dog or a cat or, or or a circle, square, rectangular shape, so forth. I was I would be given that that picture, and I and I would I would have to match it. Have to find the, its corresponding, picture among among the, a spread out sheet of, similar pictures, Mm -hmm. for me to match. And what would an exercise like that, Dr. Moody, do for an autistic child? What What is that helping his brain connect or understand? Just to connect uh, like objects. So that's kind of a similar. Then you would move to like a picture and a word so that mm-hmm. you progress um, academically. Right. And do you remember enjoying those exercises, Darian? Those, those exercises were very, very beneficial for me. It... Uh, it would um, it helped me to uh, determine to determine what what pictures match with each other and 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 another and another exercise that i still remember that i remember doing was picking maybe picking up a ball when when the ther- when one of the teach therapists in chapel hill would ask me to ask me to do when he bounced it right in front of me he or she bounced it right in front of me and i would I would simply pick it up and hand it back to the therapist. He would, and and the therapist would bounce the ball right in front of me and ask me to pick it up, which I did. Mm-hmm. And, and I notice you're very you're very aware of people in the room. You're sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. Moody, I just want to ask you about this because we call this autism spectrum disorder, yes. right? Meaning that there are lots of incarnations or iterations of of this particular neurological disorder. And we know of people diagnosed with autism who seem to be very resistant to other people, not tuned in at all. And then we know of people who seem very sensitive and aware, like like you, Darian, and Mm -hmm. like Temple Grandin, the woman who redesigned slaughterhouses to be uh, more aware of of how the animals were feeling at the time so that it was a more humane process. So how do you explain that huge divergence in what this is? So autism is a spectrum disorder. It's kind of like an umbrella term, and that can cover st- students or, or young people that are um, have profound autism all the way to very high-functioning autism. Mm-hmm. And so it's very individualized. Um, 
and nobody's alike. Uh, so that's one of the beauties of the disorder. But it's also a challenge because you have to, you know, meet people where they are. Yeah. Alice Brooks, yes, you wanted to I was to just going to say the programs that we did um, when we started out and, and when he was um, – at the age when he started out, those programs were educationally fit for, for that particular age. And then as he progressed age-wise, the programs uh, progressed age-wise to meet, you know, his chronological age. So um, that, you know, helped him some educationally, you know, in a general way, as well as, you know, learning the, the different things that you have to learn, like following directions, listening, understanding, you know, all of the things that go along with, with what you were trying to help with the autism. Do you remember the first time, Alice Brooks, you noticed light bulbs going on for Darian, like where you thought, oh, this is really working. Oh, yes. This is making a difference. Oh, yeah. When was that? <clears throat> uh, he would come home from school, from uh, First Presbyterian, uh, each each time, and I would first thing I would say to him was, you know, how um, how was your day? And he would say, how was your day? You know, he'd repeat what everything. you were saying. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there's a term echolalia. for that. Echolalia. Echolalia. Yeah, that's the right. Word. Well, he came home one day. And I said, well, Darian, how, how was your day? And he said, we played. Oh, I almost fainted <laughs> because that was the first time he had, that was, I played. And I said, if I ever wrote a book on his life, I was going to entitle it, I played, because that was the very first two words that he spoke spontaneously, correctly in his life. And I called the teacher immediately and I was crying and she was crying (laughs) and um it was it was just amazing I thought oh my gosh maybe you know this is going somewhere and how old would he have been at that point he was about four four years old Mm -hmm. yeah four years old and Darian you you are so open to people now um, and you seem to have a very strong community on social media. You seem very <laughs> comfortable with yourself. But certainly in the early days of school, you had some challenges, right? It Inter- was it, it was it was very very difficult for me to adjust to a first to a kindergarten to a church preschool environment and then a public school environment. But Dr. Schopler and his teach staff worked very very closely with with my mom, with my dad, and my school teachers and principals mm-hmm. and all. And they were they would work together. They would work they would work together, put their pull their ideas together to ensure that I was to get the kind of public school education that all other kids were entitled to. There were times you told me when you felt like the kids didn't really understand you or know you, like you'd be playing Red Rover or games sometimes and maybe feel like you weren't included. Can you talk about that? Just This is for, for parents of kids maybe who are at that stage where they're <clears throat> feeling sort of excluded. Oh, or... I, I, was, um, 
I, I, I was left, I, I was left out of a lot. I was left out of my share of uh, playground games when I was growing up, going to grade school and all. And I would just stand. At, I would stand at one. I would stand a, a short distance away just to watch the uh, watch the other kids um, take part in Red Rover, hopscotch, um, uh, outdoor outdoor recess games like that. And um, and and at times when the kid the kids wanted me to come play with them, I I would accept I accepted the invitation. But for the most part, it was it was difficult for me to try to blend in with them and. Um, because um, because I knew that um, I was I knew I was feeling excluded from the um, from the from all the recess outdoor recess games that um, every, every other child was playing. Yeah. But at times, but at times when they wanted to include me, they would they would ask me, and I would and I would join in with no trouble. That must have felt good. Felt very good. Yeah, you, Darian. I noticed that you use the phrase um, "blend in." Like you needed to learn to blend in a lot. And that makes me think, and Dr. Moody, about uh, our culture, kind of what is the line between trying to, say, teach Darian or someone with autism how to appear, I don't know, more. I don't even know what the term would be, more like most other people, versus educating other people so that we're not either shaming somebody for being autistic. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what, yeah, I like, do. what, how do we find that, that balance? Should Darian have been taught how to blend in? Or? It's a big focus um, in society right now is how much do we accept people for who they are and how much do we put our ableism onto someone else and expect them to behave how we behave in the world. And there's no right or wrong answer. Um, I would hope that people would, get educated and understand the disorder and welcome people into their communities and their schools and their friendships. That's one of the hardest things about um, being autistic and having being diagnosed with autism is that you feel a lot of kids feel isolated. They don't feel like they have a lot of friends and that can cause, you know, psychological issues. And so when they are included and they do build those friendships, it's very powerful. Yeah. And Darian, you say that you're still in your 50s now in touch with some of the people from from your school days. That's right. That's right. How have you maintained those friendships? I I maintain I maintain such friendships through um, uh, well, the only the only social media outlet that I that I do use is Facebook. I, I don't use Instagram or Twitter or any other any other social media outlet like that. I only I only I, I get in, I keep in touch with them via Facebook, and other times I, I would text I would send them a text message, uh, just letting them know let ask him how they're how they're doing with their lives nowadays and all that and all that, and um, of course I I, w- I would send them a a birthday or a Christmas card whenever the um, whenever their birthdays come up or when or during the Christmas holiday season. Yeah, Alice Brooks, you said at the end of the first segment that you have come to realize Darian's autism is one of the greatest gifts you could have been given. Why do you say that? Well, it has helped us, my family, um, my husband and I, and Darren's um, brother and sister, 
And we have realized that no matter what problems you may have, no matter what difficulties there are, no matter what stone wall there is in front of you, somehow or another you can climb that wall if you if you choose to do so and, and give it a try, at least give it a try. And we have realized that even though Darian does have difficulties, we all have difficulties. We all have something going on that, you know, we would hope maybe would be different or would hope would get better or would go away <laughs> or, you know, none of us are perfect. Nobody's, well, there's only one person. <laughs> um, nobody's perfect, you know. And we all have um, ups and downs. We all have good days, bad days. And we all, uh, you know, need to learn to live through it and get to the other side and go on and do what we are capable of doing. And I think this is what has helped all of us see, you know, yes, um, um, there are obstacles out there, but, you know, those obstacles, we can we can take care of those if we really, you know, put our mind to it and we really want them to go away. Now, sometimes I will have to admit there are obstacles that just don't go away, and we all know that. But if you don't try and you don't, and you don't give it a try, and uh, which is, I believe, what we did, we'll, okay, we're going to try this, we're going to give it a try and hope that it works, and it did. And unless you do that, you will you will never know, you know, what what you can accomplish. Do you feel as though this has also helped Darian's siblings in some oh, ways? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. They, who, who are not autistic, right? No, no, they're not. Uh, I, yeah, I have to I have to say something for, about my other two children. They have been wonderful. They have been supportive. I have never. If they ever felt like they were embarrassed or anything like that, that, you know, their brother was autistic, I never got that feeling from them. Um, and and their friends, too. It was the same with all their friends. You know, they all, they, they accepted Darian for, for who he was and, and, um, um, and we got time for me to tell the, Real quick anecdotes about brother and sister. Uh, I think. Why don't we start that story? We're gonna when we go we're, back. Okay. We're, we're gonna go to break in okay. in just a second. But Darian, you said to me that um, part of the journey in school for you was letting the kids get to know the real you. That's right. The you behind the autism. That's the right. Real you. Mm-hmm. Who is the you behind the autism? The real me. The real me behind the autism is someone is someone who who knew that life was not going life was not going to be very easy at first. There would be there would be difficulties, disappointments, limitations ahead for me. But but we're, but overcoming through overcoming every, each and every one of them has brought out the the real me that you see right now. The that that ain't that. Dr. Moody sees me right now, and and that my mom sees me right now. All of you here present 
see someone who has who's had to overcome these so many difficulties, disappointments, limitations, just keeping focused ahead on the road ahead. That is the real me. You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at living with autism through the life experience of Darian Brooks and how treatment changed what was possible in his life. After the break, more with Dr. Moody, Darian, and his mother, Alice Brooks. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Autism is showing up in one child out of every 36, according to two recent studies from the CDC. That's an increase from the 2021 estimate of one child in 44. But it's largely, researchers say, because screening and diagnosis is improving. While there still is stigma surrounding the disorder, Darian Brooks, a local man in his 50s who was diagnosed when he was just four years old, is evidence that treatment makes a difference. His mother, Alice Brooks, was a pediatric nurse during her career, and she and her late husband worked hard to give Darian the care he needed as a child. Dr. Amelia Moody is an autism specialist from UNCW's Watson College of Education, working with children on the autism spectrum. Just before we went to break, Alice Brooks, you said there's a story you'd like to share about Darian's brother and sister. Yes. Um, As I was saying, his brother and sister have always been very supportive of him. They've never... um, given me any feeling that they were ashamed of him or or embarrassed. And they could have been, but, you know, they did not show it. Um, But I'll tell you about my son, Dean, first. When Darian was a senior at Harvard, Dean was going in that same year as a sophomore. And the summer before school started, Dean and all of his buddies went, walked, we lived near Hoggard. They walked over to Hoggard and they went all over the campus looking here, there, yon, where this was, where that was, so forth. So the first day of school, Darren, we, I took the kids to school and Darren said, now Dean, I'm a senior this year and you're a sophomore, so I'm going to take you all over the school and show you where everything is. Dean never said a word to him that he had already done this. Dean followed him all over school that morning and let Darren show him where everything was as if Dean had no clue as to what was going on. And I just appreciated that so much in him. And that's, that's just the way he was with his brother. He always looked up, looked up to, to, to Darian and, and uh, was just a real, real good brother for him. Let Darian be the big brother. Yeah. And, oh, yes. Yeah, and they uh, they even played, they never actually played ball together, but they were both uh, uh, in sports together. Alicia, her birthday was in December, 
And in July of the year that she was turning 16, she had taken driver's ed, and Darian had taken driver's ed in school and had not passed it, so he did not have his driver's license at the time. And from July to December, Alicia was counting every day, oh, X number of days before I get my license. It's like every 16-year-old. You know. <laughs> so the day of her birthday, we had an appointment for her to go get her driver's license. And I went, Darren was in um, UNCW at the time. And um, I went to pick him up. And he looked just very downcast, you know, not saying a lot, which was atypical for him at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I said, son, what's wrong? He said, well, Alicia's 16 today, and she's getting her license, and I don't have mine yet. So we got home, and he went straight to his room, didn't, you know, shut the door. And Alicia said, Mama, what's wrong with Darian? And I said, well, honey, he's very upset, and I told her why. And so she went to her room, and she came out in a few minutes, and she says, Mama, you know, I just remembered something. She said, I've got something I have to do this afternoon. How about you giving Darian my appointment today and let him get his license, and you can make one for me for tomorrow while you're there. Wow. And that's that's when he got his license. This thing that she wanted so yeah. much, and she was counting yeah, the seconds. She was willing until to give could, it up so yeah. that he could do it. Yeah. How does that make you feel when you hear that story, Darian? Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's something that, um, so it, it's it's one of those moments that I'll always remember forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious when your mom tells stories about how, say, your brother Dean had already seen the campus and had learned um, where where things were. Do you, how do you? It seems like the two of you, mom and son talk a lot and you talk very openly about things but does anything ever hurt your feelings I mean you've heard that story before I guess right well one when once once one one thing that uh, that's hurt that really really hurt my feelings a lot was when I I took driver's ed I took driver's education before my senior year at Hoggart in 84 and on and on the last day that when I knew, when I knew that I was going to fail it, when I got home, I, I cried my eyeballs out, yeah. cried my eyeballs out because I knew that I had failed driver's ed. And it was just, it was just heartbreaking for me. Yeah. Very heartbreaking. Yeah. Was that because you knew it was going to be harder to get your license or, or just the whole idea of failing something to begin with? Because you'd had so many successes at that mm-hmm. point. It was it was it was due to um, not knowing the. Um, I had I had worked on the on the driver's uh, side, the driver's part of the of the um, driver's ed. It was pro- it was the written part mm-hmm. that I had the most I had trouble with. Yeah, yeah. And I and it and it it was just heartbreaking for me to know that I had failed. But mm-hmm. but eventually but eventually I re- I rebounded from that heartbreak and eventually and got a learner's permit. Mm-hmm. That enabled me to learn all the uh, necessary driving, uh, par- parking, um, parking techniques, si- knowledge of uh, all the many traffic signs and all. That that's helped. A, me, that that's helped. a lot to learn. It is a lot to learn. I mean, 
people without autism fail those tests all the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about neurodivergence and going back to this whole idea of the spectrum, Dr. Moody. We have uh, we've had another guest recently on Coastline talking about something else, but he discussed his neurodivergence, um, which was sort of it seemed like a combination of a very creative mind and a learning disability, dyslexia. Mm-hmm. What is neurodivergence, and is autism included in that? What does that mean? Autism is included in it, and neurodivergent is a simple term meaning like your brain is slightly atypical compared to a typical brain, and that can, um, if you look at brain images, you can see different parts of the brain firing um, for different reasons. And so one of the things that's a big push today is that we not put our ableism onto other people, that we try to accept them for who they are and where they are. And you'll see a lot of employers try to make autism-friendly workspaces where the lights are a little bit dimmer, it's a little bit quieter. Um, So people are making efforts to do that. And the more that we can kind of accept people and try to make um, the environment effective for everyone, the better. What are some of the things that you wish members of the general public understood more about autism so that they could be a little bit more open and friendly and less perhaps fearful or just not understanding? I think I think the biggest thing is just educating yourself about any disorder that exists, really, and autism is, is up there. Once you understand it, you can understand kids more easily. So you might see a kid having a big uh, behavioral problem in the grocery store because they didn't get something. Um, And for kids with autism, that lasts a little longer. So looking at it with empathy versus, oh, my gosh, look at this kid, um, can be very valuable. And just knowing, you know, to say to another mom, I know it's hard, you know, in the moment. And being supportive versus getting looked at. Because I had a um, a foster child with autism. And and I have been on the receiving end of good and bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) comments and looks. And it's challenging. What can you tell us about a time when somebody gave you a nasty look or clearly didn't understand? Yeah, he had an obsession with video games. And so he would go to the video section and he would just sit there and stare at the boxes. And that was something he really like visually stemmed on. And it was time to go and we had to get up and go. And he fell to the floor and he started screaming and crying. And, you know, it lasted for a fair amount of time till I could get him together and we could walk out of the store and some people are very understanding and other people will give you looks like you got to be kidding me get this kid under control and that's it's not anything that they can control because it's a shift of thinking and and having to move from one thing to the next is very challenging for Mm -hmm. people with autism alice brooks it it's not lost on you that you are a pediatric nurse and that your husband harry was um getting his master's in social work mm-hmm. so if anybody was going to have a child with special needs you were you were set up for that but you've seen this now from both points of view from the point of view of a mom raising a son with autism mm-hmm. and from seeing other moms and dads trying to cope with it. What are some of the moments that you had with Darian, maybe when he was a toddler in public, that um, that you kind of had to struggle with, mm-hmm. that you would want people to understand now? Oh, there were many, many times when he was much younger that he would have uh, 
you know, the tantrum fits um, in public. And, uh, you know, people would look at you like, you know, why can't you control your kid, you know? <clears throat> or why aren't you even trying to control your kid when you knew there was no reason to even give it a try? <laughs> um, um, and we had, we I will say that there were, there was at one point where we had some friends who I, I can remember very to this day. We were all going out to dinner together. There was a group of us going out to dinner. And one of the couples called us up and said, uh, you all are uh, going to get a babysitter for Darian, aren't you? Well, we knew that everybody else was taking their children with them. And, you know, things like that, you know. How do you feel? Very, oh, it was very hurtful. Yeah. Very hurtful. What did and, you say? Um, well, to be honest with you, we had gotten a babysitter for Darian because we knew that he would not be able to function in that big crowd of people. Mm -hmm. But for somebody to just call you up and say, you know, in essence, they were saying, you know, for gosh sakes, please don't bring him, you know. Right. Um, right. But then we had we have had so many close friends, very close friends, that friends that we made when we were working that, that still are very, very close to us today that have been a thousand percent supportive yeah. in every way. Yeah. Of, mm -hmm. of, of us and for him along the way, along this journey that uh, has, has just been wonderful. Wandering is also a, a, an element of, of this disorder. And Darian, I bet that doesn't happen very much with you today. <laughs> uh, uh, not, not too much. <laughs> yeah. But when you were a little kid... You, how did you cope with that? Because this is something that's actually come up recently in the news as being important for parents of, of young kids with autism to understand and, and be alert to. Mm -hmm. And that's happened for you. Mm -hmm. So how did you cope with it when you, your, your toddler would just wander off somewhere? Well, <clears throat> first of all, you just have to do whatever you can, whatever you try whatever you think may work and hope that it'll work. And if it doesn't work, sometimes we just had to pick him up and take him out and take him to the car if we were out in public and just yeah. get in the car and go home. Right. And, uh, you know, there, there was no dealing with it at that point in time. We had to get him to a, a place that was quiet, away from the public, that he could calm, almost like he had to wait until he calmed down on his own. Yeah. And uh, because what we found is, is that sometimes the more we tried to calm him down, the worse he got when he was really, really young. Mm -hmm. Resistance uh, meeting resistance. Yeah. Darian, Roberto Clemente, who was he? Roberto Clemente was one of baseball's greatest uh, players. He he played all 18 seasons in 
with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Um, he um, he he won 12 Gold Gloves for his defense for his defense in right field and won four batting titles as well. He was a two-time World Series champion. But he was also dead. He was also known for his dedication to humanitarianism. He he sought to improve the lives of his um, fellow Puerto Ricans who want who were who want and he used sport. He used a sport. He used baseball as that um, primary vehicle to uh, help spread his humanitarian message across. And he said he said these words. In 1971, in which um, which I've I've read I've read so much about, but I wanted to share that I want to share this with all of you here. He said, "If you have a chance to accomplish something that will make life better for those coming after you, and you don't do that, you are wasting your time on this earth." He meant that because. His dedicated dedication to humanitarianism would help help everyone live a full, fulfilling life. And I can't find better words on which to end this edition of Coastline. That was so beautifully said. Thank you so much, Darian. You're Brooks. so very welcome, Rachel. You're so very welcome. Alice Brooks, thank you for sharing you. your time with us today. Thank you. And Dr. Amelia Moody. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Find the episode along with notes and resources at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. <laughs>